Well, good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 156 of the Prancing Pony podcast, where, while the air is sometimes hot and stifling, but never foul. Well, maybe. I don't know. Never seen that. <laughs> hey, then, that's your problem, dude, not mine. <laughs> it's a good thing we're in separate booths, is all I'm saying. Indeed it is. Folks, go ahead and pull up a bench in the common room, and we'll be right there. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who once again finds himself muttering about not having any rope, Alan Sisto. I knew I'd want it if I hadn't got it. Let's just go buy you some rope, dude. I mean, we can go, <laughs> we can true, just Home run Depot. to Home Depot. It won't take that long. We'll get you some rope. Let's go do that right now. While <laughs> we're gone, we'll go to a pre-recorded segment. Sounds good. Well, today we'd like to start the show with a guest. We're joined today by an artist whom Sean and I have both been fans of for a very long time. And if you're following Tolkien fandom and art online in any way, well, the chances are you are too. Back in season two, one of our listeners asked us what some of our favorite works of Tolkien art were, and I named her picture Arendel the Mariner as one of my favorites. No surprise there, I'm sure. Well, it's Arendel, right? Exactly. Yeah, you had me at Arendel. <laughs> Though I did mispronounce her name, so I want to make sure to correct that here. And I'm speaking, of course, of the prolific and award-winning artist, Yenny Dolphin. Exactly. And you know Yenny from her Tolkien art, which you can find online at her website and at her Etsy store, both of which we'll have links to in the show notes. Now, if you're a member of the Tolkien Society, you know her from there as well. She's won Tolkien Society Awards for Best Artwork twice. In 2014, for Sean's previously mentioned favorite, A. Rendell the Mariner. And again <laughs> in 2018 for The Hunt, which depicts Finrod, Mithros, and Maglor riding in Beleriand. She also painted The Professor, which was the artwork used in the official posters and t-shirts for Tolkien 2019, which I just happen to be wearing right now. I am not kidding. <laughs> Are you serious, Sean? I am. Yeah, wow. just wow. by accident. So if you have one of those amazing t-shirts, you have her to thank. That's right. Well, we got a chance to talk to Yanni briefly when we attended uh, Tolkien 2019 in Birmingham back in August, and we kept meaning to catch up with her for a quick live interview, but, well, she was really busy, and frankly, so were we. <laughs> it was just one of those times, it was. wasn't it? Yeah, that was a whirlwind. But we have kept in touch, and just a few weeks ago, she let us know that she'd started listening to the Prancing Pony podcast, and Yay. she's even, we're proud to say, she's joined the ranks of the Fellowship of the Podcast, and we're so happy and appreciative to have her listening. Mm -hmm. Not only is it an honor to know that she's listening, but she's been a wonderful addition to our community so far. She's joined the conversation in the common room. She's been posting on some of our old episodes and even challenging some long-held assumptions, but we'll get to some <laughs> of that in a minute. True enough. So let's not put it off any longer. Yenny Dolphin, welcome to the Prancing Pony Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> it's great to be here. Thanks. <laughs> really, it is our pleasure. Well, thank you. And Yenny, we'd like to start, as we always do when we interview somebody, by getting to know you a little bit better. You know, anytime we have a guest on, we like to hear a little bit about their personal story about discovering Tolkien. So tell us, when and how did you first discover Tolkien's work? And maybe along the way, if you can also tell us a little bit about what your first steps were into illustrating Middle-earth as well. Yeah, those two really went hand in hand. Um, mm. I got into Tolkien very early. Um, it's the usual story. Whatever I've heard on your podcast, it's always the same. Uh, my mother <laughs> reading it to me when I was six, so I was really young. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember that both of you said on the show that afterwards you asked, is there more? Oh, your, your mm. kids, I think. I think your kids mm -hmm. asked, is there more? And you said, yeah. nah, not yet. Um, <laughs> my mother didn't. <laughs> oh, wow. My mother had been a huge Tolkien fan. 
for as long as I've been alive. So I think that she mm. um, read The Lord of the Rings for the first time when I was born. And since then, she has been rereading the books every year, every autumn. As soon as the leaves turn golden, she turns mm. to the books again. Mm. Wow. And when I was six, she read The Hobbit to me. And I asked, is there more? And she said, yes. <laughs> and she edited quite a lot. I was yeah. probably something like seven uh, by the time we we started and maybe nine or ten by the time we finished. So she would read some bits to me. Sometimes she would just summarize passages. Yeah. And um, it would have been something like two years by the time we were done. But mm. um, it was a wonderful experience. She she was very clever that way, just uh, closing the book at the most interesting bits and then leaving it lying <laughs> for me to find and read on. And yeah, so I was very <laughs> oh, much wow. an avid reader by the time we'd finished. Yeah. And um, the art happened straight away. I've always been somebody to pick up things that interested me, especially in books I was reading. Mm -hmm. And as soon as something something really fascinates me, I have to draw it. So the mm. first Lord of the Rings art that I did, and I'm pretty sure it was the first one, was one of Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, surrounded by the riders mm. of Rohan, I only gave Eomer a horse because cool. I couldn't be bothered to draw so many horses, but I, at least I drew all the Rohirrim <laughs> with their lances pointing inward. And yeah, and it's quite apparent from, from the way that Legolas is the biggest in the whole picture that uh, I just loved elves from the start. <laughs> and I think that when we were done, I asked her, what is that huge brown book standing on your bookshelf? And all the Germans now know that I'm talking about the Silmarillion. And mm. she said, oh, you wouldn't like that. <laughs> it's just too old fashioned. And it's not really like the Lord of the Rings. Uh, don't bother. Uh. I relieved her <laughs> for a very long time. And I discovered and rediscovered the Lord of the Rings. Then I got into, into history. There was mm -hmm. a three-year spell when I, when I was absolutely fascinated by Hannibal and the mm. Punic Wars against Rome. I'd taken Latin at school at that time. So it was really always history and mythology for me. And I love these kind of things. Wow. And uh, so the Silmarillion stood there on my mother's shelf, in German, of course, for quite mm -hmm. a long time. And... I picked it up when I was 17, and I needed a backdoor for that yeah. um, because uh, I was getting into role-playing. So I had met a couple of guys with whom I did um, the MERP RPG, okay. so oh, the middle-earth right. role-playing. Right. And there was one player who kept dropping Tolkien lore that I'd never <laughs> heard about. And that irked me to no end that anybody should know more about Tolkien than I did. Hmm. I'd ask him... Where did you get that from? And he said, oh, that's, that's all in the Silmarillion. So I, saw, so I said, okay. Um, I went home, read the book, pretty much cover to cover mm -hmm. in a very short time. And I remember finishing it and thinking, this book has something to tell me. Yeah. Mm. And I didn't get it the first time around. But um, the next time around, I just got myself something to write and a piece of paper and probably a lot of pieces of paper. <laughs> and what I then did was actually reading through the Silmarillion once again and writing down summaries of everything that I found interesting, mm -hmm. which was pretty much everything. 
Right. Yeah. So I ended up with stacks of paper of stuff that I'd written down, summarized lists of the Valar, family trees of Finway and so on. And uh, after that, I read the Silmarillion in English for the first time. And that was when I fell in love once mm. and for all. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I think the Silmarillion had a similar effect on me when, when I was a kid. And I was also a teenager. I think mm -hmm. I was 15 or 16. And yeah. it, I, again, you don't get everything on the first pass, but you feel... No. You yeah. feel a depth there that, that keeps you coming back. Absolutely, yeah. And um, this, um, th this feeling of history that mm -hmm. you get when you read it, that there's so much there and you really want to do it justice. Yeah. Hmm. So I had several more passes and then, as I said, in English, because um, everyone who's tried to read the Silmarillion in German uh, will know that... Um, if you think it's difficult in English, try the German version. <laughs> oh, it's man, so bone dry. It's oh. really very, very cumbersome. And mm. the um, translator did a great job mm. capturing this ancient feeling of the Silmarillion. Mm. But most of the beauty got lost in the process. Oh, mm. I see. That's and um, discovering that beauty was really something that absolutely cemented my, my wishes for my later life to go on studying mm -hmm. uh, English literature and linguistics mm. and uh, Latin as well, of course, because that was a given, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. English joined that pretty soon. That reminds me of a comment you made on, on one of our earlier episodes about how being a German language speaker helped you understand the Silmarillion in certain ways. I, I think this was going back to the old question mm. we had about why rivers are called he. Yeah. And uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably. I, as a person who's not a German speaker or a German reader at all, it's really interesting to me that, you know, knowledge of other Germanic languages can really give us a different window into Tolkien, which can be very complex, but also very enlightening in other ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mostly in, in the Silmarillion, but also in the Lord of the Rings, especially in the later books. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of Germanic words where obviously Tolkien didn't want to pick the um, Romanic one. Right. A lot of these are probably quite alien to regular speakers of English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And most of these have German cognates, which I then already recognized right. coming from a total family of word nerds. <laughs> so word nerdery is really absolutely in my blood. Good. My Both my parents um, studied German. My brother studied English and German. So uh, there, there was a lot of thinking about words about the history, my mother would just run for the dictionary to find out where this or that word was coming from, whether this was a cognate of that. So mm -hmm. that was really how I grew up. Mm. And there was a lot of that in the Silmarillion. Mm -hmm. So I think that reading that in English for the first time wasn't as hard as I could have been reading a foreign language book. Mm -hmm. Boy, that gives me so much hope for my kids because I'm doing that all the time. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Well, Annie, you are a prolific artist, to say the least, but I think I speak for all of us when I say that it's your work illustrating the first age, like you just talked about with the Silmarillion, that's most familiar to us, uh, the Feanorians, the family of Tuor, and so on. Yeah. Do you feel like <laughs> you spend more time as an artist in the first age? And, and if so, like you just talked about with your experience reading the Silmarillion, that, that seems like a pretty conscious choice. Is there something about those stories that draws you in a little bit more that you can identify? Totally, yes. Um, so I always loved the elves in The Lord of the Rings and mm -hmm. also the Tralalali ones in The Hobbit. <laughs> so um, when I discovered the Silmarillion, which was all about elves, so I didn't mm. have to skip the next 20 pages to get the next 
thing said by an elf. That was quite nice. So um, it was really love at first sight, especially with all these elves. Mm. And picking a favorite was very, very fast. The very first Silmarillion picture I ever drew, and drawing a picture is usually the point where you could tell this is serious. Uh-huh. Mm. So um, my very first picture of the Silmarillion was Fingon cutting off Mithros's hand. Mm. So I really very early <clears throat> headed in for these two and their friendship and maybe even the fact that Mithros isn't quite as good as some of the other ones, but mm. not quite as bad as some of still other ones, <laughs> as right, we all know. Right, right, right. And what, what probably uh, also added to that is the fact that, looking back, I talked about being a Hannibal fan, and Mithros and Hannibal actually have a lot of parallels, yeah. which I didn't pick mm. up while reading The Silmarillion, but here was a guy fighting a war because of an oath that had been put on him by mm. his father, mm. fighting a losing battle for long period of his life and um, being relocated to ever more obscure places in the end and the end really getting very depressing. And Mm. Mm. I will admit, I love depressing stories. So um, that was some of the the draw to Hannibal and definitely a lot of the draw to Mithros. That's a fascinating connection. I don't think I'd ever, I don't think I'd really ever drawn this connection between those, those two, but you are absolutely right. Uh, so many similarities, I think you no couldn't, wonder. You couldn't, you couldn't pick that up unless you'd been a fan of both of these for yeah. years. And right. then um, <laughs> I, I, never, I never drew the connection until much later either. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel mildly better about that then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, I mean, Yenny, your Mithras is... The Mithras I see oh, in my head when I absolutely. read that book, and, and I think you're Maglor as well. And yeah, as far as I'm concerned, those two are the good ones. You know, everybody yeah. has heard us talk about Feanor and his sons. Our, yeah. our yeah. opinions about yeah. Feanor and the Feanorians are well published. The pinata. Yeah, yeah the pinata. Yeah. Um, but really, the the M's are the good ones. I, I always say, mm-hmm. and and I think <laughs> you know Maglor, I, I guess, is the one that sort of comes out in the end as sort of being the the mm-hmm. purest, I guess, if there is one. Mm-hmm. But yeah. but Mithras yeah. is somewhere in the middle, isn't he? He's mm. Maybe we've been a little bit too hard on him. Maybe we haven't given him quite enough credit in our first run through in the Silmarillion. But as I'm thinking about it, you know, Alan, we just talked about that moment in Lord of the Rings where Elrond talks about the danger of an oath. Mm. And yeah. mm-hmm. we talked about Mithras and Maglor and the fact that Elrond was fostered by them. And so yeah. he would have seen firsthand the, the oh, I effects never realized of that. that. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's that moment oh, yeah. that, that moment that we just talked about in episode 150, I think it was, Alan. Uh-huh. Um, mm. About, uh, you know, when uh, Elrond and Gimli have the exchange about the value of an oath to strengthen right. Quaking Heart. Yes, of course. Yeah. And yeah. And so Elrond would have seen firsthand the, the effect that this had on, on Mithras and Maglor. And certainly Mithras is an excellent cautionary tale. For yeah. that. So I, I want to go back and reread that story with uh, with that in mind. And I probably need to go and read up on my Hannibal again, because it's been a long time Maybe. since college. When I, <laughs> well, when I'll tell I you, when classics. we revisit the, the Silmarillion in season, you know, whatever it might be, 12 or whatever, <laughs> yeah. uh, then that's something we'll have to do, uh, you know, catch up a little bit on our, our ancient history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So I may soften on my dress a little bit. Not Feanor. I will ne- I'll never soften on Feanor. Well, no, I don't think I can ever soften on Feanor. I, I always <laughs> admired Mithras, though, because he, you know, when he was rescued and he, he kind of surrendered the, the kingship of the Noldor in exile. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought that was always a very admirable, noble thing to do. So he, he certainly went up a notch in my book on that. Yes, he's he's very decent, and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think that was what what really struck me about him. And of course, you can't go and say he's absolutely pure. No, he's not. No, and that's one of the reasons why I find him so fascinating, and why mm. I f- why I feel so much for him in the end when yeah. everything just yeah. starts going downhill, and uh, the war against Morgoth is lost. Mm. His his friend is lost. So after at the end of the Nirnaith, he really has nothing left. His, no. his castle is lost, right. his alliance is lost, and his friend as well. And mm. that is really where everything starts to fall apart. And you can, you can, you can tell yeah. he never really recovers in, no. in little fits, maybe, yeah. like mm. trying to save the sons of Dior, for example. Right. But uh, there's never really anything of the strong-willed and strong-hearted Bernorian that we see in the earlier um, course of the Silmarillion. That's true. You're right. He did change drastically after that. So, Yenny, I want to talk a little bit about some of your books. In 2016, you published Songs of Sorrow and Hope, and that's a collection of mm-hmm. over 50 illustrations inspired by Tolkien, uh, Celtic mythology, and even Roman history, which, of course, we now know you're a humongous fan of it. Uh, you said on mm-hmm. your website and here on the show that you've loved Roman history since you were young. And in 2014, you even published an illustrated novel about Rome called right. Darkness Over Kenai. Uh, tell us about mm-hmm. that a little bit. Yeah, that really was um, a bit of a of a rekindling of the old love. Mm-hmm. It came completely out of the blue. I have no idea where that came from. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, sometime in 2013, I started drawing Hannibal again. Mm. And uh, I suddenly felt my, myself thinking, sorry, all my Tolkien friends, would you be terribly <sighs> cross with me if I just left Tolkien for a year or two yeah. and started drawing nothing but, but elephants and generals for something <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. uh, 18 months? And everybody said, you're not going to do that. And well, I did. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I went back to to Hannibal as a character and the place he holds in the rise of the Roman Empire, which he really helped birth, ironically, by trying to to contain it. um, Mm -hmm. Because um, by the end of the the Punic Wars, Rome suddenly had so much. And I don't think they bargained for that. So that is another Mm. thing that um, there's this huge tragic about um, somebody trying to to do something they think is right and ending up achieving the complete opposite. So it's the Mithras effect again. Mm. I started reading some um, some books on, uh, on Hannibal that um, had come up in the 20 years since I'd last been a fan. Mm-hmm. And there was one book about the Battle of Cannae by Greg Daly, a wonderful British author. And I read that one and started wondering what what must it have felt like standing on that battlefield, not just for Hannibal, but for the Romans, thinking that they couldn't possibly lose this. And suddenly to realize, this is it, we're yeah. done. That's uh, absolutely the, 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 the worst possible outcome of this battle. Then I started writing the story first mm-hmm. and um, just um, looking at seven seven different characters on this battlefield, four Carthaginian and three Roman. And of course, pretty soon I realized I want to make a book of this. And mm-hmm. of course, I want to make it an illustrated book. 
And I approached some publishers and told them about this idea and everybody basically just said you're bonkers. <laughs> yeah, so it, basically a picture book with 60,000 dead. No, <laughs> you can't do this. Well. So I said, okay, maybe not the traditional way. And I went uh, the self-publishing way then. And I um, had a Kickstarter or rather Indiegogo it was back then. And okay. um, it was quite successful. I think I overshot my goal by something like 600% or so. Wow. So it was really, really, really um, successful. I spent pretty much a year writing and mostly drawing these pictures, finding somebody who could do the layout and then self-publishing that, shipping 300 books from my home, <laughs> enlisting the children to help me pack. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, is that still available? And where can our listeners get that if they're interested? Because that sounds like something that many of them would like. Yeah, it was picked up um, by uh, an American publisher two years ago, but um, I haven't really heard about the project since. Um, oh, okay. I suppose it is somehow still around and it's going to be reprinted from an actual publisher this time that does military history and these sort oh, okay. of sorts of things. But for the time being, I'm sold out of them. And of course, oh, I okay. haven't uh, really got any new ones because I thought there's going to be a new edition. But you sure. can get it as a quite cheap PDF in my Etsy shop. Oh, okay. So if you're interested, there's a the PDF. Excellent. We'll make sure we have a link up to that on the show notes. Yeah, definitely. And Yenny, I understand you've also got a new art book out now as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I put together um, a new art book that came out last autumn called Journeys, where I go a bit more personal with my own personal artist journey, not just um, talking about the pictures, but also about what went into them mm. as an artist and some of the of the difficulties I was facing with the loss of my brother and mm. an eye sickness that I picked up two years ago now. And that yeah. really has been proven a big challenge to, mm. to do art. But yeah. yeah, then picking up art again and really taking you through that journey of rediscovering art and loads and loads of Cimmerillion pictures as well. Mm. Well, I'm looking at the cover of it right now, and it's got one of my favorite pieces of yours uh, when, yeah. when Tour comes to, oh, man, that's one of the ones <laughs> I actually bought in Birmingham. That's It's such a, a powerful piece. Yeah, that's right. It's still one of the ones that I really love. Um, yeah. It's um, a little shout out to John Garth at this point, because it mm -hmm. was very much inspired by Tolkien and the Great War. Yeah. I was listening to that uh, a year ago, and he was narrating the, the bit where Tuor comes at last to the sea after yeah. years of hardship and just spreads out his arms and mm. embraces this feeling of arriving and yeah. and the sea yeah. and everything mm -hmm. I, I couldn't help but thinking about cornwall when when i when i read that mm. and don mm -hmm. oh, later okay. told me it was probably what tolkien had in mind because there were some uh, cornwall uh, impressions fresh on his mind mm -hmm. when he was writing that scene that was doubly fitting then even if i didn't know it then mm. that's wonderful yeah that is great and it was a great cover for a book called journeys yeah. Boy, you're not kidding. That is That's uh, true, yeah. absolutely perfect for that. Well, before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you one more quick question. Give us your favorite three characters from Tolkien that you like to depict. I, I, can, it, can I guess one of them? I think one of them um, might be Mithras. 
try. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> so with, with that said, who are the other two that you would put in your top three of, of favorite ones you like to, to depict? It's difficult, really. Most of them would have to do with Mythros, I'm afraid. <laughs> so the people that Mythros, uh, in, in whose company he's usually found, which would be Fair Fingon enough. and Maglor. Mm-hmm. And yeah. again, not just because he's often found in their company. I mean, that could also be his father. And mm-hmm. I haven't been quite that fond of him since I was 17 and was more in love with rebels than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> but Fingon and Maglor are really such wonderful characters in their own right. And this they is something are. that fascinates me all the time when I get to talk to other uh, Silmarillion fans, that there is so little on these characters. Right. Mm. And yet everybody sees them in the same way. And once you start talking about them, everybody will agree and saying, yes, of course, I saw him exactly like this. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's exactly what, what he would do in that situation or how you how we would look in that situation uh, oh. when they see these characters in my pictures. And that's such a wonderful thing to to realize that with so little written about mm-hmm. these characters and these mm. sentences are so rich with meaning mm-hmm. yeah. that everybody gets the same stuff out of them. I think yeah. that's amazing. The efficiency of words that, that Tolkien, yes. I mean, yeah. he's just, he was a master at that. It, no matter how long the works were, he could do more with fewer words than anybody else. Absolutely. And I think to be able to write something that's so sweeping in its mythic scope as the Silmarillion and yet be able yeah. to get so much actual human drama out of yeah, individual detail yeah. out of every yeah. story. And, and so these characters really do leap off the page as real people, even though they are, are, are viewed from this 30,000 foot level on this yeah. mythic scale. Yeah. It's, it's truly Well, amazing. and then it's, it's thanks to art like yours that we're able to really even yeah. envision that uh, as Absolutely. well as we do. So thank you for that. Thank you. And we just want to thank you again, Yanni, for joining us here today. We're so happy to have been able to have you. And we're thrilled that you're actually listening to the Prancing Pony podcast <laughs> and supporting us. So thank you so much Absolutely. for all of that. It's great fun. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I love what you're doing, guys. So just keep it up. Thank you. Oh, thank man, you. it warms our hearts. Thank you so much. <laughs> it really does. And listeners, you can find Yenny's art online at her website, gold7.wordpress.com. You can also buy it online at her Etsy shop. That's etsy.com slash shop slash Yenny Dolphin Art. That's J-E-N-N-Y-D-O-L-F-E-N-A-R-T, all one word. That's right. And you can even join us in supporting Yenny on Patreon at patreon.com slash Yenny Dolphin. And at the risk of repeating ourselves one last time, thank you so much, Yenny, for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And with that, we'll return you to the podcast in progress. Well, folks, we are back from Home Depot. We've got Al and his rope. And I hope you enjoyed that interview with Yenny. That was so much fun. Oh, it was. And thank you, Yenny, once again for being on the show. Mm-hmm. Folks, we have already been talking about getting her back on for a full episode interview as soon as we can. Definitely. And now let's get back to the book because we're all about the books here at the Prancing Pony Podcast. Yeah, we bring you other Tolkien stuff from time to time. But at heart, Alan and I are fans of Tolkien's books and books about Tolkien. That's our passion. Yes, it is. And as you know, we read a lot of books in preparation for the show every week. And if you'd like to get your hands on a book that we've mentioned, well, you're going to want to check out the official library page of our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. There we have links to every book we've mentioned on the show. And there's a lot of other stuff on our website, too. There's show notes and book links specific to each episode. There's outtakes, there's Prancing Pony Ponderings, and there's some other little extras. 
You'll also find a link to our new online storefront at teespring.com stores PPP, where you can find shirts, mugs, stickers, and other Prancing Pony podcast gear. So please be sure to check that out. Definitely. And now let's join the company deep in Moria and hope that we aren't bewildered beyond hope of remembering. So we'll, uh, we'll take... No different than usual, I guess. I know. That's yeah. exactly... I'm usually bewildered beyond hope of remembering, so yeah. good luck tonight. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and pick up where we left off last time. This is right as uh, Gandalf explained how long of a march it's going to be. Okay. After only a brief rest, they started on their way again. All were eager to get the journey over as quickly as possible and were willing, tired as they were, to go on marching still for several hours. Gandalf walked in front as before. In his left hand, he held up his glimmering staff, the light of which just showed the ground before his feet. In his right, he held his sword, Glaumdring. Behind him came Gimli, his eyes glinting in the dim light as he turned his head from side to side. Behind the dwarf walked Frodo, and he had drawn the short sword, Sting. No gleam came from the blades of Sting or of Glaumdring, and that was some comfort, for being the work of elvish smiths in the elder days, these swords shone with a cold light if any orcs were near at hand. Behind Frodo went Sam, and after him Legolas, and the young hobbits, and Boromir. In the dark, at the rear, grim and silent, walked Aragorn. The passage twisted round a few turns, and then began to descend. It went steadily down for a long while before it became level once again. The air grew hot and stifling, but it was not foul, and at times they felt currents of cooler air upon their faces issuing from half-guessed openings in the walls. There were many of these. In the pale ray of the wizard's staff, Frodo caught glimpses of stairs and arches and of other passages and tunnels, sloping up or running steeply down or opening blankly dark on either side. It was bewildering beyond hope of remembering. Well, that's why your booth is foul, because you don't have any currents of cooler air. I know, I was thinking the same thing, how much I would love to have half-guessed openings in the walls, but then the sound wouldn't be as good. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there is that. So let's go ahead and get back to the beginning of the passage and take a look. Yeah. So they're eager to get moving, aren't they? Everybody's in a hurry. Yeah, nobody wants to spend more time here than is necessary. No, that's absolutely right. They're tired, but they're willing to keep going for several hours. Yeah, this is not, let's stay here and camp out because it's such a charming, beautiful place to spend time. Keep moving, people. Let's get out of here as quickly as we can. Now, Gandalf doesn't have his staff fully lit. Apparently, this is on some sort of low setting because it only shows the ground just in front of him. So it's pretty dim light, really. I would imagine that at the very back, it's almost impossible to see anything from the light. That's right. And we notice that we don't have any other light coming from a couple of the weapons they're holding, right? Right. Gandalf is carrying Glomdring. Mm -hmm. Frodo is carrying Sting, even Mm -hmm. though if he loves it, he should set it free. And... (laughs) Every move he makes, man. (laughs) And they're comforted to see that no gleam is coming from those blades because, Mm -hmm. well, remember, these are swords made in Gondolin in the Elder Days. And so we know that they glow blue. For the Goblin Wars, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I also thought it was interesting that Tolkien takes great pains to give us the exact order of the party. So it's Gandalf, then Gimli, Frodo, then Sam, Legolas, Merry and Pippin, or Pippin and Merry, that's the only detail we don't have, Mm-hmm. then Boromir, and then Aragorn. But I think the thing is, as any DM worth their salt will tell you, you have to know what order your party is in when you're exploring a dungeon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, you need to know who's bringing up the rear because yeah. the tentacled monster that exactly. might 
grab you suddenly. Aragorn, roll a d20. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, why am I rolling? Just roll, man. Just roll. Just roll. <laughs> I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Gandalf, roll your perception check. All right. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So what do we get? We get some twists and turns in the passage. Of course, of course. And then it begins to descend. Right. Uh, descends for a little while and then becomes level again. Mm-hmm. The air changes, though. The air does change. It grows hot and stifling, not foul. I'm not going to make one more joke about it. Well, of course you can. You can make as many jokes as you want. <laughs> well, the other thing, aside from my booth, I think of it, it, this feels like a motel room to me. You know, like it's uh, air is stifling, but it's not foul. Kind of like you might say of a motel room. It's like, yeah, well, it's, you know, it's not comfortable, but it's clean. Yeah. It's not big, but it's clean. You know? Yeah, I wouldn't spend any extra time here, but it'll do the job while I'm on this road trip. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of a, it's very slight praise. <laughs> for the change in the air. Frodo is catching glimpses of stairs and arches, passages and tunnels. So I'm kind of curious about that just in, in how he's able to see it, because if the light is so dim that it can only show the ground before his feet, how is Frodo catching maybe he's seeing, sight of these things? Maybe, maybe he's the, seeing darker spots in the ground. Maybe he's seeing dark lines that indicate openings instead of wall. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the pale ray of the wizard staff. So he is seeing it in the light of the wizard staff. We'll find out later. I mm-hmm. say that because later we'll find out that Frodo is uh, gaining more. Oh, that's right. We do see that Frodo has a skills. little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. He's got, he's got some senses here. Yeah. He might, might be, not he might even be developing infravision. Anyway, Ooh. speaking of infravision, Gimli well, I, I, before we get onto that, I just want to point out that, I mean, he is seeing these various openings in the walls. This is a much more oh, yeah. labyrinthine place than, than we're seeing here. They're walking oh, yeah. in a straight line, but at least right now, this is not a straight path. This is a path mm-hmm. with lots of places that are branching off, rooms branching off. Stairs, branching arches, off. passages, tunnels, up, mm-hmm. down. It is, as they describe at the very end, as Tolkien says at the very end, it is bewildering beyond hope of remembering. Mm-hmm. If he got yeah. separated, he could not possibly find his way anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, because you're thinking any one of these openings might be the path I should take. Right. And bewildering is kind of an understatement. We need a Gollum GPS. Yeah. <laughs> you would need a Gollum GPS. Yeah. There you go. But speaking of people who aren't of any help, even Gimli, you know, even though he's a dwarf, I mean, okay, we don't read this, but. He's not of any harm. He is courageous. He's not troubled by the dark, but he's not of any sort of practical help. He doesn't nope. necessarily know how to navigate That's true. here. Mm-hmm. As the text says, these are vast and intricate beyond the imagination mm-hmm. of Gimli. Mm-hmm. Well, that's saying something for a dwarf. Well, I think it's a sign of decline. You know, we get oh, this, this maybe, theme of yeah. decline Absolutely. throughout Middle Earth, you know, and, and Moria. Oh, is ancient. Very, very old place. This yeah. is like, this is ailed into Yawerk for dwarves. You know, mm. it's it's not something that he can really comprehend. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. As we'll see later the, in the song that we'll get to in, well, it's not this episode. It's the next episode. It's the next episode when we get the song of uh, of Durin and the Mirror Mirror. This is a place yeah. of legend. Yeah. This is a place mm-hmm. of legend for Gimli. Yeah. So he certainly doesn't Absolutely. know it. Yep. And even Gandalf's previous visit is really of virtually no help at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, this strip mall wasn't here the last time he was here. And there's like this big gas station. <laughs> and right that here used to be an Applebee's, yeah. and I don't even know what it is now. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember. I haven't been here in years, guys. I'm sorry. I don't even know. I don't even know if that diner's any good anymore, yeah. you know? so. And that was just a hill I'm before. Now help. it's like a whole housing tract. I have no idea. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, yeah. It, it, as the text says, the far off memories of a journey long before were now of little help. And basically, he just kept going in the direction that he knew he wanted to go, even if he didn't know the path itself. In other words, he knew he wanted to yeah. go east. So he just stuck to east, even if the path was winding. He just kept on wanting to go forward yep. in that right direction. Yep. So those twists and turns, that confusion can cause a little bit of uh, a little bit of anxiety. And Aragorn mm-hmm. has something to say here. Sean, I'm going to have you read that for us. Aragorn has some words of encouragement here, and they're fluffier than you might expect. <laughs> Do not be afraid, said Aragorn. There was a pause longer than usual, and Gandalf and Gimli were whispering together. The others were crowded behind, waiting anxiously. Do not be afraid. I have been with him on many a journey, if never on one so dark. And there are tales in Rivendell of greater deeds of his than any that I have seen. He will not go astray, if there is any path to find. He has led us in here against our fears, but he will lead us out again, at whatever cost to himself. Mm. He is surer of finding the way home in a blind night than the cats of Queen Beruthiel. Oh, what's that I smell? I smell... A sidebar. But we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Sidebar we'll smells like victory. I love mm-hmm. the smell of a sidebar in the evening. Gandalf and Gimli are whispering. Everybody else is a little bit nervous, like, uh, why are the two leaders whispering? Do they not know where they're going? Do they not know where they're going? They don't know where they're going. They don't know where they're going. We're lost. We're going to die. They don't know where they're going. Ah, they don't right. know where they're going. Yeah. So Aragorn reassures them. And I love this. He says, look, in Rivendell, there are stories, man. There are stories in Rivendell of things I've never even seen him do. He's done some incredible things. He is not going to go astray if a path exists. I feel like there's a potential Chuck Norris thing here with Gandalf. <laughs> yes, there <laughs> the is. Stories about the things he's done. Oh, my goodness. That is awesome. I wish I could think of one off the top of my head, but yes. I know, me there's too. There's definitely I, a, a, a Chuck can't. Norris vibe to that line, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there is. Oh, it's a he shame. wants Roundhouse kicked a Balrog into it. You know, I don't know. I, I got nothing. I got nothing either, out. man. It's late. <laughs> but just the idea, and you know what'll happen, right? We leave that in the episode, and our listeners are going to come up. Somebody with like, will come up with thirty of them. Exactly. Yeah. We're going to get like the top ten moments. Yeah. The Chuck Norris Gandalf, moments Chuck of Norris Gandalf. Facts. Right. It's going to be a great meme <laughs> war of twenty twenty. All right. Yep. But Aragorn's point is like, look, if there is a path, if there is a way, he will find it. This is Gandalf. Mm -hmm. He is going to find the way out. And then right in the midst of this very encouraging thing he's saying, Mm -hmm. he comes out with something a little bit dark and foreboding, doesn't he? Oh, yes, he does. He will lead us out again at whatever cost to himself. There's definitely some foreshadowing here. Again, this is not the first time. foreshadowing on this one. This is Aragorn's, I have a bad feeling about this. Yeah. And I mean, this is not the first time and I'm... Pretty I'm sure it's, pretty not the last. it's not the last yeah, time. I think. I think so. Yeah. And then, well, well, and then we get one of the greatest textual ruins of all time. <laughs> I don't love we? it. I love it. Uh, uh, the, the cats, cats of Queen, Queen Beruthiel. Yep. So yes, we do smell a sidebar. <laughs> smells a little bit like cat food. <laughs> well, it's better than smell like a litter box, I guess. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it might be making some of you sneeze. There you go. But hey, My eyes let, are red and itchy talk now, about, but let's do this. <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, we usually start in the letters when it comes to something like this. Yeah. And sure enough, we actually do find a couple of references in there. Mm-hmm. In letter number 163 to W.H. Auden, which was written in 1955, 
Tolkien answers several questions. Now, the letter as a whole is fascinating, yeah. and we have talked about it before. Uh, for example, that's the one in which Tolkien confesses that he had never been to Bree, and that Strider was a shock, that the minds of Moria were a mere name, and so on. Yeah. But as for the cats, Tolkien says, I have yet to discover anything about the cats of Queen Beruthio. Mm-hmm. And then there's letter number 174 to Lord Halsbury, also written in 1955. In this one, Tolkien says, I don't think that anything is referred to in The Lord of the Rings, which does not actually exist in legends written before it was begun, or at least belonging to an earlier period, except only the cats of Queen Beruthio. <laughs> and then finally, in letter number 180, that's a 1956 draft to a, a reader who's identified only as Mr. Thompson, Tolkien says that, there is hardly any reference in The Lord of the Rings to things that do not actually exist on its own plane of secondary or sub-creational reality. That is to say, have been written. Mm -hmm. But in a footnote to that line, we learn the things that Tolkien recalls as not having been written. The cats of Queen Beruthio and the names and adventures of the other two wizards, five uh -huh. minus Saruman, Gandalf, Radagast, are all that I recollect. There you go. But in a footnote to the chapter on the Astari in Unfinished Tales, Christopher Tolkien tells us that even the story of Queen Beruthiel does exist, however, if only in a very primitive outline, in one part illegible. He goes on to tell us that she was the nefarious, solitary, and loveless wife of Taranon, 12th king of Gondor, 3rd age 830 to 913, and first of the ship kings, who took the crown in the name of Falastur, lord of the coasts and was the first childless king. Well, I suppose if his wife's loveless, there's probably no surprise that he's also childless. <laughs> probably. <laughs> he goes on to say, Beruthiel lived in the king's house in Osgiliath, hating the sounds and smells of the sea and the house that Tyrannon built below Pilargir, upon arches whose feet stood deep in the wide waters of Ethir Anduin. She hated all making, all colors and elaborate adornment, wearing only black and silver and living in bare chambers, and the gardens of the house in Osgiliath were filled with tormented sculptures beneath cypresses and yews. I'll add, by the way, as an aside, she sounds absolutely charming. I don't know what his problem is with her. She sounds. <laughs> I mean, wow. She really does sound She's like a, a delight. She's a winner, dude. I know. How did you get <laughs> <I know>. her? <laughs> Whoa. I mean, the only thing she's got going for is the fact that she wears black and silver, but the Raiders weren't around yet, so she doesn't have that in her favor. Really. <laughs> -dum -boom. Of course, you had to get the I Raiders reference in there. I had yeah. to, but I also had to defend the Raiders and say, like, she's clearly not. She she would never be a Raiders fan. No, right? she yeah. would not fit in the black hole at all. She would not. No. All right. She had nine black cats. I should point out that I'm going back now to Tolkien's words, Christopher Tolkien's words, not mine. <laughs> Please. She had nine black cats and one white, her slaves with whom she conversed or read their memories. Hang hang on a second. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Can she really enslave 10 cats? Like, can uh, any no. human have that much control over their cats? That's true. I, I think it's probably pretty hard to enslave one, let alone 10. Right. I mean, I can't even get one of my two cats to stop sitting on the, the top of the couch and leaving a big imprint <laughs> well, of her we'll, bottom in it. We will see that uh, the, the white cat seems to be key. So maybe she's enslaved that one and given it like power over the others, it seems. I don't know. Maybe so. Well, but you make a point. We'll I mean, find we, out. Maybe there's, maybe there's something at work here. Maybe Gondorian cat cats can be enslaved. I don't know. Maybe so. Anyway, so let's go maybe ahead and so. Maybe I should get some of them. So she apparently conversed or read their memories setting them to discover all the dark secrets of Gondor, so that she knew those things that men wish most to keep hidden. 
and I'm just going to leave that right there, um, setting the white cat to spy upon the black and tormenting them. Man, she's really a winner, isn't she? Wow, she really is just, oh, she's just a class act all around. I hope she has a sister. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no man in Gondor dared touch them, the, the cats, that is. All were afraid of them and cursed when they saw them pass. What follows is almost wholly illegible in the unique manuscript, except for the ending, which states that her name was erased from the Book of the Kings, quote, but the memory of men is not wholly shut in books, and the cats of Queen Beruthiel never passed wholly out of men's speech, and that King Tyrannon had her set on a ship alone with her cats and set adrift on the sea before a north wind. <laughs> He'd finally had enough, man. The ship <laughs> he finally was... had enough. The ship was last seen flying past Umbar under a sickle moon with a cat at the masthead and another as a figurehead on the prow. You can see him now, right? <laughs> you like your cats so great... dang much? You're out of here with your cats that's a, on a boat with a cat. That's a great image. <laughs> Isn't it? That's a great image. And I can totally see King Tyrannon at the bar with his friends later. Like, so, you know, all his friends are like, I finally did so, it, man. man. What was it that finally did it? You know, it's like, oh, well. She found the things that I wished most to keep hidden. Exactly. You know? And I was like, that's it, man. I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, I'm done. I told them to make but me a But she has a sister, with... so, you know. She... <laughs> 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 Who's just as charming as she is, was. Well, yeah. still is. I don't well, know that she's dead. She's just abandoned on a boat <laughs> with no food. Just cats. <laughs> sent out under a sickle moon. <laughs> Which just sounds like. Oh man, poetic! It some, does. For some reason, this is real know. justice there, man. That is, yeah, that is a great passage, and it's one of those things. Again, I, as we record this, we're only a few days after the passing of Christopher Tolkien, and this passage yeah. just reminds me of how grateful we are, as we are every episode, for the work that Christopher Tolkien did. But this is just phenomenal <laughs> it is. to have access to this stuff. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Queen Beruthiel, a tale yeah. that we never would have known as anything other than textual ruins that even Tolkien himself. Right claimed were textual ruins, Christopher Tolkien was right. able to dig up some, uh, a primitive yeah. outline. I mean, yeah. you stop and think about that for a moment. I, I mean, we, we've come across a couple of these things before where Tolkien remembers things a certain way, you right. know, usually because he's writing a letter 20 years later or exactly. something like that. So many years And then later. Christopher is able to go back to the original documents and say, you know, my father didn't remember this correctly. He corrects right. it a little bit to be able to have a better record of the creation of this world. Yeah. The subcreation of this world. Right. Then, then the author himself remembered that's, that is, that is such a gift. Breathtaking and in its scope, isn't it? It, it? it is. And it's, I, I think it must be unparalleled among oh, yeah. writers. I, 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 I don't know of another writer that we have this kind of insight into his artistic process and have mm. this much, supplementary information and and the fact that we owe it all to christopher yeah yeah i'm gonna get emotional again i know <laughs> every just, every time now i mean it's yeah 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 it's just such a gift to us and and i am so appreciative to christopher yeah. for doing for doing yeah. this for us and, me too me um, too this one is a fun one and yeah, it's a really it deep cut and it, it's a it's <laughs> it a really strong this reminder is definitely of, a b-side for sure but it's a great one totally and, yeah. uh, you know, it, it may make us laugh, this whole idea of this really just unpleasant woman uh, and being her being set off, <laughs> cast alone on a ship. Sent on a boat <laughs> it's just with awesome. her cats. The king is like, I am done. I am just done with you. You're gone. <laughs> She's out of there. She's the crazy cat lady on the boat by herself with the cats. Well, 
I have something to say about that, though. I know you do because you're a cat guy. But but first, I want to say just just the beauty of get the blank out of here and take your cats with you. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) It really it really makes me happy. But it it does about her being a cat lady. I think we've got a little bit more on that. Yeah, we do. Because just when you think we've plumbed the depths and we've gotten as much (laughs) out of Queen (laughs) Barithia as we can. There you go. Hammond and Skull actually bring us this other lovely bit that comes from an interview that Tolkien gave to New Worlds in 1966. Mm. Tolkien said, I don't really know anything certain about Beruthiel, though oddly enough, I have the notion that she was the wife of one of the ship kings of Pilargir. Okay, uh-huh. that's consistent yeah, so far. Right. She loathed the smell of the sea and fish and the gulls. Yeah, again, just like Christopher tells us, yeah. And after referencing a Norse myth, and I, I think we'll have to talk about that myth about Scotty in the postscript for this episode. Ooh, yeah. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be. After talking a little bit about that, he says that Beruthiel went back to live in the inland city and went to the bad, or returned to it. She was a black Numenorean in origin, I guess. Uh-huh. And that's uh-huh. all Tolkien's words. Right. She was one of those people who loathe cats, but cats will jump on them and follow them about. Oh. You know how sometimes they pursue people who hate them, which... <laughs> I think that means that happened happened when you came over to my house, didn't it? Right, exactly. (laughs) That is that is what happened. You're right. Your cat kept chasing after me, like I'm allergic to you. Get away! Get away! But you just like, hey, you seem nice. I love you. I love you. And you're like, dude, stop! I'm gonna sneeze. Don't get next to me. I'm gonna be in my eyes. I'm not gonna be able to sleep tonight. Yeah. And you can imagine Tolkien is saying this because you know what happened to him, huh? I mean, the cats are the are the fauna of Mordor. You know, he clearly yeah, to not good. Who I don't good. think he. Yeah, but he also wrote some other nice poems That's about true. cats too. He, and it's only specifically Siamese cats that are the fauna of Mordor. If, if the fauna of Mordor honest. were Siamese cats, you're right. right. But he wrote that Grimalkin poem in one of his letters, and right. he did write. There's another poem I think in Adventures of Tom Bombadil, isn't there about a cat? I think you're right. So yeah, so there's there's a few things out there. I don't think he hated cats as much as he liked to say he did. Well, it's kind of like but, me. I may, I may maybe I'm just trying to get him back on my side. I don't know. There you go. Maybe, maybe Tavildo. <laughs> so yeah, back to Queen Beruthiel uh, and how she uh, hated cats, but they pursued her anyway. Tolkien says, "I'm afraid she took to torturing them for her amusement, huh. but she kept some and used them, <laughs> trained them to go on evil errands by night, to spy on her enemies or to terrify them." Ooh, so. I don't know. She really wasn't a cat lady. No, you're right. Not in the sense that she liked cats. I mean, she had a bunch of them, but she didn't like them. She abused them and she and then used forced them, as, them to like, do her, date, she her weaponized dirty work. Them, right. She, she weaponized cats, man. <laughs> now she's stuck on the boat with the cats who yeah. are looking at her like, hmm. Yeah. I don't see any mice. I don't see any fish. I don't see any birds, but I see you. <laughs> we can and eat isn't you. That, isn't that the perfect like poetic punishment? punishment yeah, for this? exactly. It really because is. she hated these cats and, and she gets she's sent stuck off with them forever on a boat with them. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> that's brilliant. I love and that that, that oh. was a sidebar. Boy, wasn't it? That might be one of my favorite sidebars <laughs> in a long time. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, now where were we? Uh, oh, that's right. We were in the mines of Moria <laughs> and Gandalf's trying to lead the way. So as scared as they might be, it really is a good thing they've got Gandalf and his little portable light source because they they left a lot behind at the doors, right? They At the desperate scramble at the doors, many things have been left behind yeah, because, yeah. well, because tentacles. 
That'll do it every time. Every time. They left their flashlights at the front gate. So, yeah, it's a good thing they've got yeah. Gandalf here. And they need to have a light source because not only do they mm. need it to help them choose between different roads, but yeah. there's also holes and yeah. pits and wells and things like that that they could fall into yep. if they can't see them. So, yeah, light Absolutely. is really, very important, really crucial right it now. It would be nice if they had more than the one since there are nine of them, but, you know, this will do. Yeah. And then, of course, Sam, Sam doesn't just need light. He needs rope. There's a point where they get to a crack that's more than seven feet across. And that's a pretty big jump for a little guy like Pippin. Uh, he makes it across. And, he, and Sam's like, man, rope. I knew I'd want it if I hadn't got it. Now we've got some so he can borrow ours. That's right. There are times when it's helpful to have some rope, you know. Yep. All right. I'm going to go ahead and pick up right at that point. All right. As these dangers became more frequent, their march became slower. Already they seem to have been tramping on on, endlessly to the mountain's roots. They were more than weary, and yet there seemed no comfort in the thought of halting anywhere. Frodo's spirits had risen for a while after his escape, and after food and a draft of the cordial. But now, a deep uneasiness, growing to dread, crept over him again. Though he had been healed in Rivendell of the knife stroke, that grim wound had not been without effect. His senses were sharper and more aware of things that could not be seen. One sign of change that he soon had noticed was that he could see more in the dark than any of his companions, save perhaps Gandalf. And he was, in any case, the bearer of the ring. It hung upon its chain against his breast, and at whiles it seemed a heavy weight. He felt the certainty of evil ahead and of evil following, but he said nothing. He gripped tighter on the hilt of his sword and went on doggedly. The company behind him spoke seldom and then only in hurried whispers. There was no sound but the sound of their own feet, the dull stump of Gimli's dwarf boots, the heavy tread of Boromir, the light step of Legolas, the soft, scarce-heard patter of hobbit feet, and in the rear, the slow, firm footfalls of Aragorn with his long stride. When they halted for a moment, they heard nothing at all, unless it were occasionally a faint trickle and drip of unseen water. Yet Frodo began to hear, or to imagine that he heard, something else, like the faint fall of soft, bare feet. It was never loud enough or near enough for him to feel certain that he heard it. But once it had started, it never stopped while the company was moving. But it was not an echo, for when they halted, it pattered on for a little all by itself and then grew still. That's not creepy at all. At all, really, <laughs> in a pitch black, no. oh, not at all, cavernous complex that you don't know where you're going or where you've been to hear footsteps following you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I love this whole last paragraph. I want to talk about it, but mm -hmm. first, we're going to have to go back and talk about the first paragraph you read. Yes, on. we do. Yeah. It seems as though they're going to the very roots of the mountain, aren't they? Yeah. Endlessly to, to the mountain's on, roots. Endlessly to the mountain's roots is what it tells us. This just keeps on going. The road never seems to end mm -hmm. is kind of what the, the sense we're getting here. This is mm -hmm. it's like deep, it's like deep, 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 unfathomably deep into the, yeah. into the ground. This is like one of those endless runners on your phone. You just, no matter how far you get, you never get to the end. Yep. Right, so, yeah, indeed, they're, they, they are headed to the roots of the mountain. But as tired as they are, they're going to keep on going because stopping just isn't very comforting. The idea of stopping here in this pitch black where they mm -hmm. don't know where they are, where they don't know what's around them, 
just yeah. keep going. No matter how tired you are, really, the alternative is to stop, and I don't want to do that either. Yeah. And we really see the effect that this has on Frodo. We oh, see yeah. Yeah. he had, he was doing all right for yeah. a little while. Yeah. Food, you a know? little bit of brandy, you know? Yeah. He's doing yeah. all right. He was, he was doing all right. But now a deep uneasiness growing to dread is creeping Ooh. over him. Yeah. Growing to and dread. And this is powerful. It is. Mm -hmm. It really is. And then we get the first mention of the lingering effects of the Witch King's blade, right? This whole idea that the wound had not been without effect. And this is the first time we mm -hmm. see that. Is this dread one of those effects? I mean, I know we're going to see some other very mm. clear effects mm. of the blade. but That's a very good is... point. In other words, yeah. The, the, the you know, we know fear is, is the weapon of the Nazgul, right? Right. Is, is Frodo feeling this dread more acutely because of the effects of the Witch King's blade? There's a little bit of that. I don't know. That, There's that certainly despair. an implication of that. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, right after it, right? The deep uneasiness growing to dread creeps over him. Though he'd been healed, the wound hadn't been without effect. Now, sure, after mm -hmm. that is when we get the effects. But I got to say that the dread, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that's an effect. It certainly sounds well. like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Certainly it certainly must like have it. some sort of dread enhancement, you know, dread plus two or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But here we get some positive changes. Uh, some, I mean, well, I'm not going to call any effects of the Witch King's wound positive, but beneficial, <laughs> beneficial, it, right? It works out okay. Yeah, it, it yeah, there are some things that can help him from time to time. The fact that his senses are sharper, he can see things that normally couldn't be seen. Mm -hmm. But really, that's the only net positive, if you have it. That's the only well, uh, benefit, because the only other thing that's listed is now the bearer, as the bearer of the ring, he has this, this incredibly heavy weight. Mm -hmm. I think there are actually two very similar senses that he's getting here. I think he's got, okay. he can perceive the unseen, sort of like a spider sense maybe. And then he can also <laughs> see better in the dark, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I see what you're talking about. More aware of things. Yeah, you're right. I think it's two different things. I think you're right. Still not much of a net positive in the long run, but no, <laughs> you know. Slightly beneficial here in the going. middle of the dark, but yeah. Yeah. But the next thing we get, as you said, is this, this heavy weight of the ring mm. just hanging on his Hanging on his breast. Yeah. And there's something very, very despairing about he feels the certainty of evil ahead and evil following. Boy, between a rock and a hard place here, huh? Yeah. No matter what we do, stop and evil catches us, keep going, and we run headlong into the evil. Yeah. Boy, that's very well said. Yeah. And mm. it's just, it's just no escaping it. No. We're going to face it one way or the other, so go forward, I guess. But yeah. Evil to the front of me, evil to the back. Here I am, stuck in the stuck middle in with the middle you. Of <laughs> stuck in the middle with you. <laughs> oh, man. But he, he grips his sword, and I love this. He went on doggedly. Mm. And it's sort of that same, you know, we, we've come back to that Beowulf concept. That Germanic that thing, same, isn't it? Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to yeah. do my duty. If evil's following me, and it's chasing me to more evil, am I going to want to face the evil that's following me, or am I going to want to keep moving and face the evil mm. that's, that's coming up? Mm -hmm. And he's going to want to keep moving forward. Yeah. I have to face the evil that's coming up. Yeah. I'd rather face that evil that I'm going to come upon rather than stop and face the evil that's chasing. Yeah. Then we get this really cool description, this vivid description of the sounds of the company. You can this really hear this, paragraph. can't you? Isn't it? I mean, it's simple. Yeah. We're, we're two words yeah. for each one. Dull stomp, heavy tread, light step. Uh, maybe the, the well, hobbits get a few more it's words. It's such a vivid auditory passage. There's so it much is. sensory information here. And it, again, the action does seem to slow down. 
Mm-hmm. You can actually see a scene in, in, you know, some movie of Lord of the Rings that has not been made where you actually see a close up on everybody's feet and you hear the sound of each member of yeah. the fellowship's feet. Yeah, you really And do. yeah, there's so much, there's just so much distinction between them, isn't there? Mm-hmm. There really is. A little bit of alliteration, right? We get the, the firm footfalls. We mm-hmm. get the um, soft, scarce. Soft, scarce herd patter. Light yeah. step Legolas. Mm-hmm. Halted and yeah, heard. Yeah, that's true. We get a little bit of, you know, a little bit of, a uh, little bit of alliteration here and there. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Now, is Frodo hearing this? Is Frodo more acutely aware of these sounds because of the ring? Is this something oh, else is that this his another senses... improvement, another sensory improvement? Yeah, yeah. The, either the oh. ring or maybe the lingering effects of the blade. Which oh yeah, blade. yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking, not the ring, but yeah, yeah. That's an interesting I thought. I mean, it doesn't really say that this is just Frodo's perception. It just says there was no sound but the sound of their own feet. It right. doesn't really say for sure that we're in Frodo's point of view here. That's but... true. I don't think it is because now we're in the company's view, aren't we? The company behind him spoke seldom. Mm-hmm. No sound but the sound of their well, own feet. Well, no, the feet. company behind him. So that, Yeah, but that's their Frodo own again. feet. It's not, there was no sound but the sound of the company's feet. It was their own feet. That's so it's true. The company plural. That's true. Because if it was Frodo's I view- I hear what you're saying, that the company behind him does still leave us in Frodo's view. You're right there. Mm-hmm. But then there's no there sound, no but the sound, sound of sound their of... own feet. If because it was Frodo, the, yeah. if yeah. it was his view, it would say there was no sound, but the sound of the company's feet. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. I could kind of go either way on this one. Uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know that it's definitive. Because then we do get to Frodo, Frodo began, to, began hear. to hear or imagine that he heard. Yeah. It's a hard call. That is a hard call. Either way, I, I think I kind of like it not being enhanced by yeah. the ring or by the by the by the wound, because I, it just it kind of makes this scene so much more powerful if it's mm-hmm. just so quiet. I think that is exactly what we're supposed to hear. Is right, yeah. all we hear is the footfalls. Mm-hmm. I think Absolutely. that's it. So, but then Frodo does hear something, and this may be yes. enhanced either by the ring. Or, or the Witch King's Blade. And what does he hear here? That's right. Ooh. The faint fall of soft, bare feet. Yeah, yeah. And he's not totally sure that he hears it. No. But once it starts, it doesn't stop. And yeah. then he realized that it's not an echo. Yeah. Because when they stop moving, it keeps going for a little while. Just a little bit. Oh, that's so creepy. It is. And of course, anybody who's read the story or even knows of the story knows that this is, of course, Gollum. Of course. Uh, but in Unfinished Tales, we learn some details about this. We learn it for certain. Uh, and we find out that after his escape, now that's the escape from the elven quote unquote jail, <laughs> the one that Legolas traveled all the way to Rivendell <laughs> to tell us about. Uh, guys, uh, we kind of let him go. Um, sorry. Anyway, so after his escape, he's being hunted by he the He just elves. wanted to go get some yard time. He just he said he just wanted to lift some weights, and we let him out there. Yeah, I mean, we didn't want him to escaped. get... We, we figured that letting him out in the fresh air would help him rehabilitate. You know, we didn't... Our recidivism rate was, you know, something we're really concerned about. <laughs> Except it's not. These are elves. Nope. But anyway, so after his escape, he's being hunted by the elves. He hides in Moria. And then we get this. What then happened to Gollum cannot, of course, be known for certain. He was peculiarly fitted to survive in such straits, though at the cost of great misery. But he was in great peril of discovery by the servants of Sauron that lurked in Moria. Especially since such bare necessity of food as he must have, he could only get by thieving dangerously. 
No doubt he had intended to use Moria simply as a secret passage westward, his purpose being to find Shire himself as quickly as he could. But he became lost, and it was a very long time before he found his way about. It thus seems probable that he had not long made his way towards the west gate when the nine walkers arrived. He knew nothing, of course, about the action of the doors. To him they would seem huge and immovable, and though they had no lock or bar, and opened outwards to a thrust, he did not discover that. In any case, he was now far away from any source of food, for the orcs were mostly in the east end of Moria, and was become weak and desperate, so that even if he had known all about the doors, he still could not have thrust them open. It was thus a piece of singular good fortune for Gollum that the nine walkers arrived when they did. There you go. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking a few episodes ago about how it was Spabimi that the Fellowship went through Moria. Mm-hmm. Because, and I think we talked about the fact that, you know, Gandalf falls and he comes back as Gandalf 2.0 and everything. And that becomes a, a key element in, in the subsequent War of the Ring. Mm-hmm. This is another really oh, yeah. big Spabimi, isn't it? It is, yeah. That they go, they go through Moria and Gollum ends up, well, it ends up being good fortune for Gollum because otherwise he would have starved to death. Right. But it ends up being good fortune for everybody. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Because Gollum ends up, Gollum yeah. ends up following them and, and we all know up, what happens at the very end, right? We all know what happens then. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. pretty amazing. If Gollum had starved to death here in Moria, would Frodo and Sam ever have made it to Mount Doom? Yeah. And had they made it to Mount Doom and, and Frodo claimed the ring for his own, what would have happened then? Right. Yeah. Mm. Pretty amazing stuff. Really amazing stuff. But then there's a fork in the road, and that's where I'm going to have you pick up. All right. It was after nightfall when they had entered the mines. They had been going for several hours with only brief halts when Gandalf came to his first serious check. Before him stood a wide, dark arch opening into three passages. All led in the same general direction, eastwards. But the left-hand passage plunged down, while the right hand climbed up, and the middle way seemed to run on smooth and level, but very narrow. Hmm. I have no memory of this place at all, said Gandalf, standing uncertainly under the arch. He held up his staff in the hope of finding some marks or inscription that might help his choice, but nothing of the kind was to be seen. I am too weary to decide, he said, shaking his head, and I expect that you are all as weary as I am, or wearier. Hmm. We had better halt here for what is left of the night. You know what I mean. In here it is ever dark, but outside the late moon is riding westward, and the middle night has passed. Poor old Bill, said Sam. I wonder where he is. I hope those wolves haven't got him yet. To the left of the great arch they found a stone door. It was half-closed, but swung back easily to a gentle thrust. Beyond there seemed to lie a wide chamber cut in the rock. Steady, steady, cried Gandalf as Merry and Pippin pushed forward, glad to find a place where they could rest with at least more feeling of shelter than in the open passage. Hmm. Steady! You do not know what is inside yet. I will go first. That's probably a good thing he goes first, as we'll find out. But let's go back oh, to yeah. the beginning of that. So sometime in the middle of the night, several hours after they entered, so probably somewhere between, I don't know, maybe midnight and 2 a.m., maybe? I don't know. We'll find out a little bit more about the miles that they've been going. Uh, they come to yeah. this big opening with three passages. 
They all had the same yes. direction, which got one up, one down, and one straight ahead. Interesting conundrum. Which doesn't make it confusing at all. Not at all. Not at all. Good thing Gandalf has been here before, but guess what? He doesn't uh, remember the place at all. Right, right, right. And he realizes very wisely, I think, that they're really all yeah. too tired to yeah. make a decision right now. Absolutely. So let's halt here for the night or what's left of it because it mm-hmm. is pretty late or very yeah. early in the morning. Right, right. Uh, you know, everybody's hangry and they're just, they're ready for a break, you know? <laughs> Gandalf needs a Snickers. <laughs> yeah, you're not yourself when you're hungry. Gandalf. Exactly. So Hammond and Skull point out that one of Tolkien's early chronologies says that the company had traveled 15 miles to get to this point since entering Moria earlier that night. And we're going to get on about pace later. But if they're at that same pace uh, that that we'll get to to discussing at a later point, they've been going for about five hours to make that 15 miles. Now, the moon was shining, but -hmm. this was January. So really, it could have been as early as six, maybe seven o'clock when they were at the door. But then you count the incident at the doors, the meal before they begin their march. I think it's fair to say it's at least midnight probably a little bit later than that, but you know, it's not going to be like four in the morning at this point, not if they've only gone 15 miles. If, if that's the distance they've still gone, obviously that early chronology is no longer directly applicable, but it's good to know that Tolkien had that in mind. Yeah. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Poor Sam thinking oh, about Bill. Of course. Poor I hope guy. the wolves haven't got him yet. Yeah. Kind of a grim thought. <laughs> yeah. Poor guy. Yeah. So then they find the guard room. Mary and Pippin, of course, push to the front. They're a little anxious because now they are in a place where, you know, they can rest. They don't feel like they're in this, you know, open passage that's just where they're completely vulnerable. But Gandalf tells them to wait, and mm-hmm. and we then, then see why, don't we? Yeah, well, wouldn't you know it, great big hole in the floor. <laughs> so that was a close one. Gandalf, roll uh, a d20 for me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. Aragorn uh, wisely points out, uh, you guys might have fallen in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and still be wondering when you were going to strike the bottom. Like, that's Ooh, how deep. That's a terrifying thought, by the way. To, to fall so far that you realize I'm mm-hmm. falling. Oh, my goodness. I'm still yeah. falling. I have no idea when I'm going to hit the bottom. I am still What is this falling. wide, round thing that is coming up to meet me? It's so round. I shall <laughs> call it the ground. I wonder if it will there be friends. Go. There you go. Yep. Sorry. For those of you who didn't quite recognize the reference, that's from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy after the... Um, improbability drive in the heart of gold generated a, um, a bowl of petunias and a sperm whale above the surface of a planet. Yeah. And the, those are the thoughts of the whale as it fell plummeted to the earth planet. I think anyone who's ever listened to this show has heard us make that reference before. So quite probably, quite probably. Yeah. It is a classic moment from that. Book. It is. It really is. No doubt. And Aragorn gives some of the best advice ever. Let the guide go first while you have one, mm-hmm. but let's, Point while out. you have one, there's while another one of those things one. you mentioned earlier. The idea that there's this kind of exactly foreboding nature to the comet. Once again, Aragorn has a bad feeling about all of this, and yeah. he he thinks Gandalf is not going to be around much longer. That's no moon. Yeah, he does have a bad exactly. feeling about yeah. this. That's, yeah, it's kind of the territory we're in right now. It really yeah. is. Yeah, um, and then Gimli, of course, gives us a nice little technical detail, you know, a little, a little story filler for us to understand why this room is what it is. He explains, look, oh, yeah. this is probably a guard room made for watching mm-hmm. these three passages because we're at a, a pretty major junction here in this, in right. this main route. And the hole was, of course, a well, which, you know, the lid's broken, so we need to be careful. Right. Though why you wouldn't build a little parapet around the well in the first place, I don't know. 
instead of just making it maybe because like they're hole. dwarves and they don't need those kinds of things. I don't know. Maybe, they're so maybe. I get the sense that dwarves are just so sure-footed. Yeah, in, maybe in this in a place like this. That's true. In a place like this, certainly. Yeah. I don't know. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and pick up right after that, and uh, we're going to see how Pippin's curiosity gets him in a little bit of trouble. Now, I think it might be the first time we've seen something like this, but it certainly won't be the last. So I'm going no, to read. Not at all. Pippin felt curiously attracted by the well, while the others were unrolling blankets and making beds against the walls of the chamber as far as possible from the hole in the floor. He crept to the edge and peered over. A chill air seemed to strike his face, rising from invisible depths. Moved by a sudden impulse, he groped for a loose stone and let it drop. What is with impulse control and stones with this group? I'm right? telling Boromir you, man. Throwing Just a like Boromir. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Boy, you're not kidding. It's impulse control again. Yeah. Yeah. Another kindergarten report card is coming home. Seriously, with, yeah. We're going to get, you know. Practice better impulse control. Mm-hmm. We need to work on this, parents. He felt his heart beat many times before there was any sound. Then, far below, as if the stone had fallen into deep water in some cavernous place, there came a plunk, very distant, but magnified and repeated in the hollow shaft. What's that? cried Gandalf. He was relieved when Pippin confessed what he had done, but he was angry, and Pippin could see his eye glinting. Fool of a took, he growled. This is a serious journey, not a hobbit walking party. Throw yourself in next time, and then you'll be no further nuisance. Now be quiet. Nothing more was heard for several minutes. But then there came out of the depths faint knocks. Tom, tap, tap, Tom. They stopped, and when the echoes had died away, they were repeated. Tap, Tom, Tom, tap, 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 Tom. They sounded disquietingly like signals of some sort, but after a while the knocking died away and was not heard again. That was the sound of a hammer, or I've never heard one, said Gimli. Yes, said Gandalf, and I do not like it. It may have nothing to do with Peregrine's foolish stone, but probably something has been disturbed that would have been better left quiet. Pray do nothing of the kind again. Let us hope we shall get some rest without further trouble. You, Pippin, can go on the first watch as a reward, he growled, as he rolled himself in a blanket. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Pippin. Oh, Pippin, Pippin, Pippin. As you said, yeah, this this is not the last time we're going to see Pippin do something like this. Mm-hmm. He gets near the edge of the hole, yep. looks over. Mm-hmm. What is it about this hole? Just Seriously. Like, man, it's, that's it's a like nice a magnet. Well. It just draws yeah. it. Yeah. That's a really nice well. That, I like that well. That's a nice well. That's a nice you got well. a nice well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's the stone drop. Let's and the man, stone drop. Many times takes now. A very long. I wonder time what a heart. What's the resting heart rate of a typical hobbit? It's smaller than a than a human, so it must be a higher heart rate. I would guess. That would make sense. Yeah. But either way, you know, we're talking at least two or three seconds. Mm-hmm. Probably more. Has felt his heartbeat many times. It's a long way to fall. And then you get this very wonderful onomatopoeic plunk. Mm-hmm. Far, Distant far and below. magnified and repeated. Oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's fantastic. You can just, you can hear it really in your head. It's this magnificent sound just coming up, rolling up, yeah. echo after echo after echo. Yeah. Mm. And Gandalf kind of freaks out at first, doesn't he? Like he's oh, scared yeah. for a moment. Of course. I mean, this is a pretty silent place. Earlier we just heard mm-hmm. there was no sound but the sound of their footfalls. And now we get this. So, mm-hmm. you know, when he finds out what happened, well, okay, he's a little bit relieved, but he's angry. 
And even Pippin mm-hmm. knows it this time. And Gandalf, of course, not surprisingly, as we've heard one of the more famous lines, fool of a took. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly not the last time he's going to call him a fool either. Right. And then, oh, <laughs> this uh-huh. the knocking tap, of tap, the hammer. Tap. And again, some um, another another bit of wonderful onomatopoeia. I know, isn't it? Tom tap, tap tom, tap tom, tom tap. Yeah. The text tells us it sounds like a signal. Yeah. And yeah, it does. Yeah. This isn't and just this is some not random good, folks. sound. Uh-uh. Yeah, uh-uh. This, is, this is not good. No, it's not. And yet Gandalf isn't, he's not losing it. No. You know, he's calm. I think he realizes it's far enough away that the odds of them knowing exactly where this came exactly from. Exactly where be, they are. Yeah. This can't yeah. be the, the only place where a hole from the top comes, comes right. through. Yeah. There's right. going to be lots and lots of other wells and there are going to be other places where maybe it goes, you know, through another yep. place at a different level. Sure. But, you know. But, but still, this is, this was a bad idea, Pippin. Very this was a very bad idea. idea. And as a reward, he gets first watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going to stay yep. away. And now we get this, by the way, in the next paragraph that we stopped reading. Now he's afraid. Now he's afraid. Why couldn't he have been afraid earlier is what I want to know. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, it would have been nice if he had had a little bit of that caution yeah. earlier on. Everybody else is making beds against the walls as far as possible from the hole. Mm-hmm. And I'm just... I'm noticing how much this has in common and also kind of has different from the later incident that everybody can remember where Pippin does something impulsive and a very bad idea, which is the incident with the Palantir later on in Two Towers. Uh I mean, once again, you've got Curious Hobbit making a bad choice. Right. You got the wizard being angry, but then really quickly kind of turning, being kind to him, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because here we see Gandalf, he shouts at him. And then he gets over it and then he says, you know, look, just don't do it again. Pray, right. do nothing of the kind again. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a pretty kind, pretty gentle admonition at that point. Yeah, I think so. So I don't know. I think it does sort of foreshadow the later incident with the Palantir. If, if nothing else, when Pippin does it later with the Palantir, it shouldn't be a surprise because no, Pippin no. does this kind of thing. As well as even Gandalf's reaction in terms of yeah. you know, the immediate reaction of, wow, that was a stupid thing to do. But mm-hmm. then it's, yeah. you know, concern for Pippin it's because here we are just, yeah. you know, an hour later he comes over and he's very kind. And the text tells us, he says yeah. this in a kindly tone, you know, go ahead and go to sleep. Look, I can't sleep. I'll watch. Don't you worry about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really like that. Exactly. But then he realizes his, him problem, his watch right? and then he realizes what he yeah. really needs. Yeah. I think he needed a Snickers bar earlier, right? We said he was hangry, but yeah. that's not what nope. he gets. He actually gets a smoke. He needs a smoke. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I need smoke. And Pippin sees that wonderful image. You can just see that in your mind, this this shadow sort of uh, Gandalf huddled on the floor. Yeah. He's got a little light source, you know, a glowing chip in his hands between his knees. Oh, what a what a moment that is. That is that is a cool image. That's a very Gandalfy image. That it reminds is. me a little bit of the image from early in The Hobbit. You know, oh, he's yeah. Uh, yeah. sitting with the, the smoke is surrounding his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the rings, yeah, all around. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, after everybody rests, we've got another march. And Sean, I'm going to go ahead and have you take us through that march. Sure thing. It was Gandalf who roused them all from sleep. He had sat and watched all alone for about six hours and had let the others rest. And in the watches, I've made up my mind, he said. I do not like the feel of the middle way, and I do not like the smell of the left-hand way. 
There is foul air down there, or I am no guide. I shall take the right-hand passage. It is time we began to climb up again. For eight dark hours, not counting two brief halts, they marched on, and they met no danger, and heard nothing, and saw nothing but the faint gleam of the wizard's light, bobbing like a will-o'-the-wisp in front of them. The passage they had chosen wound steadily upwards. As far as they could judge, it went in great mounting curves, and as it rose it grew loftier and wider. There were now no openings to other galleries or tunnels on either side, and the floor was level and sound, without pits or cracks. Evidently they had struck what once had been an important road, and they went forward quicker than they had done on their first march. In this way they advanced some fifteen miles, measured in a direct line east, though they must have actually walked twenty miles or more. As the road climbed upwards, Frodo's spirits rose a little, but he still felt oppressed, Mm. and still at times he heard, or thought he heard, away behind the company and beyond the fall and patter of their feet, a following footstep that was not an echo. Okay, the footstep's still there. That's fun. Yeah, that's comforting. Yeah. Well, you know, at least we have the following, you know, at least we have the footstep following us. We can't be totally lost. Somebody's got to know where we are. There are footsteps behind us. Let's just wait and ask him. Right. You know the way out, don't you? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. Just follow me. (laughs) One left, precious. Two right. Three. No, go back. Go back. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Uh, Wouldn't it have been interesting to have them meet Gollum this early in the story? Wouldn't it? Yeah. Boromir would have killed him. Yeah, Boromir would have killed him. You're absolutely right. Legolas might have, too, just because... uh, you know, we we don't want this embarrassment. Dude, you, you know, made me look bad. Around. Right. You <laughs> yeah. made our whole Wood Elves people look bad. So we're yep. just going to eliminate this problem right here. That's actually why Thranduil sent him as an assassin, to find yeah. and kill Gollum, to restore their reputation as the best jailers in Middle-earth. Our entire penal system is a joke. <laughs> you must kill him now. All right. <laughs> Gandalf wakes them after he watched for six hours while they slept. So... Mm-hmm. figure, I don't know, what time do we figure it must be? Eight in the morning, nine in the morning at this point? Yeah, probably something like that. Something like that. Thinking maybe a little early, maybe seven. Before, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So he's made up his mind, right? It's very subjective. I don't like the feel of the middle way. Very, yeah. There's foul air down below. What's the line from the movie? You know, when in doubt, Marianne, follow your nose. Follow yeah. your nose, yeah. Which I always hear in my mind, it always knows, and I start hearing the jingle for Fruit Loops. You know, every time I hear that scene. <laughs> wow, that's follow your nose. Amazing. It always knows. You seriously yeah. don't remember that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, do. no, I totally get it now. I never thought about <laughs> and it before. Now you'll never be able to unhear it. I certainly ever. will again. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it always that's knows. Great. Yeah, Gandalf even sounds a little bit like Toucan Sam there at the point at that moment. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, so we go right and up. And I, I suppose, really, if you have to choose between down, level, and up, up's probably your best bet. You're more likely to get to fresh air. You're more likely to get to, uh, uh, to maybe some windows and some light. So not a bad idea. I mean, that that sounds logical. That sounds like a, a good methodical way of making the decision. Because other, right. otherwise, I'm thinking, is this memory? Is this intuition? Is this yeah. hand of a Louvatar making sure they find the right way? Or is this yeah. just a plain... 33% chance, you know. Right, which is better than the 11% chance of Frodo being grabbed by the Watcher. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Yeah, is, I can see I Gandalf know. in I the mean, middle of the night. Everybody's asleep. Everybody's asleep. 
eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Gets a Balrog by the wing. If he hollers, yeah. let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Because, yeah, yeah, it does seem like yeah. a completely arbitrary it decision. It does, doesn't it? That totally he, he really is just like, you know, Iluvatar take the wheel. But <laughs> oh but God. when you put it the way you did, oh, I mean, it does make sense to go up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There is some logic there, but it's not mentioned that that was actually used in the analysis here. But right. maybe, maybe. Either way, they end up with another long march. Uh, it ends up being eight hours plus some brief halts, so maybe nine or ten hours in total. This is after having been up until possibly two in the morning and sleeping for just six hours. So they've got to be wiped, especially with, you know, none of these roads, well, not none, but most of these roads are not level. They're going up or they're going down. Yeah, uh, These are yeah. hard paths to navigate, doing it in the dark, doing it while they're chased. They're scared, probably hungry, certainly thirsty. We know they didn't have a lot of water. They were almost at a Miravore. This is not a pleasant trip, but. Not one bit. It's an effective it's effective road that they're on. This is a main road of some sort. Mm-hmm. The text tells us that they walked 20 miles in those eight hours, mm-hmm. right? They advanced some. Making their way 15 miles as the crow 20 flies. 20 or yeah. more. And this is for mm-hmm. eight dark hours. So they're pacing about about 20 minutes per mile, which for those of you yeah. uh, would mean the rest of the world. On um, the metric system, that's about 12 and a half minutes <laughs> per kilometer. Uh, so it's it's a steady pace. It's not fast by any means. They're not, you know going to break the 5k record here or anything Uh, but it is you know a consistent pace especially considering the environment yeah that's not bad i mean you know three miles in an hour is not bad right absolutely and yet frodo is -hmm. continuing to feel oppressed yes and he's continuing to hear this ominous patter Mm -hmm. of Gollum's feet behind him yeah boy that is well, like we said, he has that sense of evil following and evil ahead. Mm-hmm. Now we know a little bit more about the evil that's following. Mm-hmm. Yep. But they do eventually make their way to a great hall. And that's where I'm going to pick up. It's going to be the last bit of the chapter we read tonight. But, uh, but that gives us an opportunity to pick up next week with uh, a wonderful song from Gimli. But for now, let me read this. Gandalf seemed pleased. I chose the right way, he said. At last we are coming to the habitable parts, and I guess that we are not far now from the eastern side. But we are high up, a good deal higher than the Dimrill Gate, unless I am mistaken. From the feeling of the air, we must be in a wide hall. I will now risk a little real light. He raised his staff, and for a brief instant there was a blaze like a flash of lightning. Great shadows sprang up and fled, and for a second they saw a vast roof far above their heads upheld by many mighty pillars hewn of stone. Before them, and on either side, stretched a huge, empty hall. Its black walls, polished and smooth as glass, flashed and glittered. Three other entrances they saw, dark black arches, one straight before them eastwards, and one on either side. Then the light went out. That is all that I shall venture on for the present, said Gandalf. There used to be great windows on the mountainside and shafts leading out to the light in the upper reaches of the mines. I think we have reached them now, but it is night outside again, and we cannot tell until morning. If I am right, tomorrow we may actually see the morning peeping in. But in the meanwhile, we had better go no further. Let us rest if we can. Things have gone well so far, and the greater part of the dark road is over. But we are not through yet and it is a long way down to the gates that open on the world. My, oh my. So going back to the, the part that you didn't read, the paragraph immediately before that, uh-huh. 
we see that they've basically marched as far as they can, or at least as far as the hobbits can. They're at the, the end of their endurance. Yeah, they really are. And suddenly they pass into this huge space. Indeed. Uh, they, they do get in this space and they bunch together. I mean, this is a, mm-hmm. a, a different feel. So they get together, they're a little anxious, but Gandalf is really pleased with himself, isn't he? Oh, yeah. He's like, hey, I, I chose wisely. I chose the right way. I'm seeing the he's, Guardian he's from as surprised uh, the, as the, rest the of last Indiana Jones movie, or the last good Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> you have chosen. You chose poorly. Right, exactly. You chose wisely. Wisely, yeah. 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 And Gandalf is as shocked as anybody. Of course. He hasn't quite let on. He just, he just seems pleased. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He's, yeah. Woohoo, I lucked out. But we are a little too high, he recognizes. Yeah, too high. I mean, well, he, he does notice these are places people lived, so they're near the eastern side. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Yeah, but yes, too good. high. Yeah. And then what does uh, and he And then he, of course, risks some here? light, right? He risks a little bit of light so we can see the place. What a sight. Yeah. Oh, Little circle man. of light from Gandalf's staff. Absolutely a circle of light. We don't know for sure that it's a circle, but I imagine it is a circle of light. Well, I doubt it goes out in like a trapezoidal pattern. Probably... He might have a fancy starburst pattern that it comes out in. You never know. I'm, I'm thinking spherical. I'm it's sure it's a circle spherical. of light. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, we get Gandalf using his magia here again to light mm-hmm. things up a little bit. We yeah. see this flash like lightning and then they see the place they're in. There's yeah. a vast roof. There's these pillars hewn of stone. These smooth, polished black walls. Just gorgeous. And three more entrances and or exits. That's right. That's right. Uh, and it's night outside. Now, that's interesting. They've been going for eight hours. So if they slept for only six and it's dark already. So let's let's think backwards. It's night outside. Mm-hmm. But given the time of year, that could be as early as, well, and, and given the latitude, it could be as early as yeah, 4.30 or 5. somewhere in the north, and this is winter, right? So Right, right. It's January. It's, it's mid-January. Mm-hmm. So 4.30, 5 o'clock would be the earliest that it could be dark. Let's call it 5 o'clock. It's been eight hours. That means they started I mean, potentially at potentially earlier. We just don't know how far north this is. But yeah, I think, you know, 4.35 is probably a safe bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm somewhere between 4.30 and 5. But didn't we think, that, didn't we find out that the Shire was sort of at England in terms of latitude? Yes. And so now yes, they're a little further right. south than that. So this is like maybe France or, uh, you know, northern Italy or something along those lines in terms of, you know, similar latitude. Yeah. Again, I know we're, we're trying to make real world comparisons. And I know that that's not something that's we necessarily should do, but, yeah, but it's, it's fun to do anyway. But yeah, let's yeah. assume that, you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the evening, they've marched for eight hours plus brief halts. So maybe it's closer to nine hours. If that's the case, then we're looking at, the fact that they would have started at 8 a.m., um, mm-hmm. where they were before it was dark, even though it was light outside because they were further down the mountain. Right, true. That makes sense. If they'd slept for only six hours and they started at 8 a.m., then they were up until 2 in the morning the night before. So that, that makes sense. That works. Yeah. Uh, so it's does. only just now dark. It's a shame they didn't get there sooner. Uh, but if they if they rest now, they'll, they'll get some light in the morning. That's right. We may get some light in the morning and... That's a nice little image, nice, nice little thought, nice little bit of hope. Yeah, yeah, I think say. so. You know, light is always symbolic. see some morning hope. light in the morning. Yeah. So let's go ahead and rest while we can, but we're not through yet, are we? No, we're not. And folks, the greater part of the dark road is indeed over, but as Gandalf said, we're not through yet. Uh, we've got Barlowman's bag coming your way in just a minute. And even when that's done, the talk continues all night long at the Prancing Pony. Yes, indeed. We've always got lots of discussion happening in our social media spaces. Mm-hmm. 
At our common room on Facebook, you will find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode, as well as updates from us throughout the week. Mm-hmm. Just look for the Prancing Pony podcast on Facebook and click the like and follow buttons. And now we have another common room over on Reddit. You can find some really great discussions there at r slash prancingponypod. As always, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the handle at prancingponypod. So follow us wherever you might be. And if you like us, please share us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, anywhere you can find Tolkien fans. And if you really want to let the world know your feelings about us, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more Mm -hmm. reviews we have, the more visible our podcast is. That helps others find us and this great community of Tolkien fans we've built together. And finally, if you'd like access to exclusive content like postscripts, quarterly specials, PPP swag, and even more, check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod to find out how you can join the fellowship of the podcast. Now, I think it's time to see what old Barliman has in the mailbag for us. Sean. All right. Well, we've got a couple of quick ones tonight. Both of these come from Sam D. in Texas. First, Sam asks, In the discussion on the Council of Elrond, you pointed out that the members were called, seemingly by Providence, and that Saruman was not there, despite being a member of the White Council. Does this suggest Saruman was denied the calling? If his absence was eventually revealed to be malicious, could this have been a way of creating suspense regarding Galadriel? As in, Hmm. later on when we meet her, are we supposed to fear that she may be in league with Saruman? Hmm. This would make her rejection of the ring all the more profound to us readers. Alan, what Hmm. say you? Well, let's remember the discussion briefly. Uh, We discussed how everybody who was at the council was not summoned to Rivendell by Elrond to attend a council meeting. They were all on their own errands, right? Legolas was bringing the news of Gollum's unfortunate escape. (laughs) Boromir is seeking the answer. Can't leave that one alone today, can we? No, we can't. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, and and everybody had their own purpose for being there. It's it's by providence that they were all there at the same time. So does Saruman's absence imply that Iluvatar knew better? than to arrange to get him there? Uh, well, yeah. Of course Iluvatar knew better. Even yeah. Gandalf knew Saruman was a traitor at that point because he just, you know, escaped from Orthanc. So yeah, yep. the same providence that arranged for Legolas, Boromir, Gimli, Gandalf, and the Hobbits all to be there at the same time arranged for Saruman not to be there and also yep. arranged for Gandalf to find out about Saruman's treachery early enough to make sure they didn't do a, a direct manual summons to him to, to bring him to the council. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. All right. So what about this other question about Galadriel and, and the impact that all this has on our perception of her later on? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, Galadriel isn't even mentioned here. We discussed that maybe because Tolkien didn't invent her until later. So it may not be as much a question of what does the news of Saruman make us think about Galadriel, whom we haven't heard of yet, as much as it is a question of when we meet Galadriel later on, what are we supposed to think about her? Yeah, Tolkien does leave us wondering about Galadriel even before we meet her. Uh, when the Fellowship gets near to Lothlorien, we get that wonderful exchange between Boromir and Aragorn in which Boromir expresses his fear of the Golden Wood. I think we're meant to be a little suspicious or a little fearful about Galadriel, at least uncertain. Now, that uncertainty exists right up until the moment she passes the test and will go into the West and remain Galadriel. We, we realize at that point, in hindsight, that even she was uncertain of her own trustworthiness. It's really is a powerful yeah. moment. It's a good point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But now how much of that uncertainty about whether Galadriel can be trusted comes from the knowledge that others like Saruman have already betrayed them or fear that she might actually be in league with Saruman? How much simply comes from the language of the passages in question, like the exchange between Boromir and Aragorn? 
Mm-hmm. Well, the truth is, by the time we meet her as first-time readers, we don't know anything about the White Council. We don't know anything to suggest that Galadriel even has Saruman in her contacts list. So I, I tend to think that most of the uncertainty comes from those later passages and from the uh, sort of the isolated nature of the Golden Wood, the fact that they don't interact yeah. with others, the yeah. way, you know, Rivendell is known as a place of lore, right? I mean, Denethor sends right. Boromir to Imladris because it's known. Right. Nobody, Nobody send sends anybody, anybody to, to Lothlorien for counsel. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's got a lot to do with it. I don't think there's any indication that she might actually be in league with Saruman. Uh, and, yeah, I agree with yeah. that. I think it's a really interesting question, mm-hmm. but I, I don't really see too much. As a first-time reader, you don't really right. see much of anything to connect the two of them, mm-hmm. even later on when we meet her. No. So, you know, for, for a reader who is approaching this for the first time and doesn't know whether she's going to betray them or not, there's just nothing to connect her to Saruman at all. We have right. reasons to believe like the Rohirrim might be in league with Saruman. The text actually tells us right, that might right. be a possibility, but there's yeah. nothing in the text to tell us that anyone is thinking Galadriel might be. So right. I think I, question, I tend to though. agree with you, Alan, but it is a really fun question. And I have to say yeah. thanks for that, Sam. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got one more from Sam here. He also said, regarding our dear friend Butterbur. Ah, yes, Barnum. It is unfortunate that he is assigned the epithet fat, and a cursory Mm. search into the (laughs) etymology of the word doesn't suggest much more meaning than the obvious. However, since the word has also been used to mean a privileged and rich person, perhaps Aragorn intends it endearingly for him? Hmm. We have already seen that he appreciates the simpleness of the brief folk. Maybe he's reinforcing Butterbur's success in his community. I don't know. Um... I mean, I want to ask you what you think, but my first comment is just looking at the context of Aragorn's statement. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think, no, <laughs> it's not a positive reference when he calls him that. No. At least no, at the time. Not. But but you've got some stuff on the etymology and, and some of the history of that. Yeah. So let's get your insight on this one, Sean. It is a nice thought. We really don't want to think of Aragorn as fat shaming Barlamin. No. So I, I definitely like the thought, and I would love to find a way to absolve Aragorn here if we can. Would be nice, right. I'm just not sure we can, but let's take a look. So looking at the Oxford English Dictionary, it appears that the earliest senses of the word fat were primarily used to describe animals. So the OED gives us a citation of fat meaning well-fed or plump pretty early on, around 893 in Old English. Mm -hmm. That was in reference to animals. And then more specifically, in reference to certain animals that are fed up for slaughter or ready to be killed, that starts appearing around 1,000. Now, these are both arguably positive senses, at least from the perspective of the farmer, a well-fed animal is, is a good thing for you right. to have. Of course. Um, and it's, it's specifically describing them as well-fed as opposed to obese. Uh, right. But again, this is all specific to animals. It's not too long before the word fat starts to be used in a derogatory sense too. There's an old English riddle in the Exeter book, which includes a reference to, this is interesting, there's a reference to all of creation. Creation's the answer to the riddle. And mm-hmm. there's a reference to it being fatter than a fattened swine. Now, the oh, OED wow. lists this as a derogatory sense. I don't really know that I understand why that is, but that's what the OED says. So they're listing this as a derogatory sense. Okay. The first reference in the OED to a person being fat in a derogatory sense is in Middle English around 1400. Huh. We don't really get positive senses of people being called fat that sounds anything like what Sam is thinking of, you know, like this idea of a a privileged and rich person, you really don't get that until a bit later. 
Around 1526, we start seeing these figurative phrases like fat of my benefits or made fat with God that are more Mm. positive senses of that idea of fat. Right. Interesting. You know, it does make me think that we've talked in a Patreon special last year about the time, the the kind of the anachronistic stuff about the Shire and how Mm -hmm. Brie is kind of stuck between the more like like turn of the stuck century between sort of the more medieval world and the more modern world. Right, right. It's like yeah. a late late middle ages sort of thing as opposed to, you know, mm. early medieval. So maybe maybe since Bree is sitting in that later time we get some positive meanings, but honestly, it's not looking good maybe. generally, is it? It's really not. No, I mean no. really the earliest senses of the word fat in regards to people really were speaking negatively about them. Right. And or, or I guess at the very least, comparing them to well-fattened animals ready to be slaughtered. Neither <laughs> one of those interpretations really absolves Aragorn no, very much. No, none of those are good. And you said this at the very beginning of our answer. When you look at the context, he's got statements like, Strider I am to one fat man who lives within a day's march of foes that would freeze his heart. Right. That's kind of a bitter statement. You can see that Strider's kind of angry about that. He's Yeah, he really that is. is. That really is a... A pretty negative sense in which he's using that. Now, mm-hmm. I suppose you could argue that as much as we made a few jokes about body shaming Barlamin, I think the reality is maybe Aragorn is not so much judging Barlamin on his weight as he is sort of comparing him to a dumb, well-fed farm animal. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind mm-hmm. of see a little bit of that. You know, he's sort of criticizing Barlamin for having this naive understanding of the world and kind of doesn't realize how good he has it. Right. So maybe there's a bit of that there, but I don't really see that as endearing either. No, no, I I don't think so either. I I tend to think Occam's razor applies here. I think the simplest answer is the correct one. I think Aragorn's just calling Barlamin fat and he's, he's using it in a derogatory way. He's not alone. Gandalf does the same thing, but I, I just, I think it's important to stress that they're not doing it to make fun of him or to be juvenile, even though we made some jokes about that. Um, well, I think right. the reality is they're judging him for being unreliable in a crisis. Yep. They're judging him for not being used to making the kinds of sacrifices that, you know, people like them have to make, people like Gandalf right. and Aragorn have to make when they're in right. wartime. Yeah. It might be a little bit better than making fun of him, but I wouldn't say it's endearing either the way no. Sam is looking for. No, I don't think so. But Sam, it was a great question, actually, and so were both your questions tonight, so thank you very mm-hmm. much. And folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Now, please be sure to join us again next week when Gimli breaks out a little dwarven karaoke. Man, I I don't know. That just seems a little disrespectful of dwarven history, I got to (laughs) say. I admit, maybe. I mean, it's not very hard, really, though. The karaoke is straightforward. It's mostly just chanting anyway. So uh, that's true. Too hard to do. I'm going to be in so much trouble with the dwarves. Better than our karaoke. It's got you got to. Oh, anything. Well, that's a low bar. Much better than our karaoke, you got to say. No doubt about that. Well, folks, we want to thank each of you for listening as always. And we want to also give a very special thank you to our patrons at the Keardance Contribution Tier. To May in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, Jerry in Texas, Bruce in California, Mario in Utah, Seth in Texas, Ella in California, and Joseph in Texas. Thank you all so very much. And make sure you don't miss a single episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. 
And one last thing, as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, and most of all, your maps of Moria to Barnuman at the Prancing Pony Podcast.com. Boy, wouldn't those be handy? Wouldn't they? Yeah. And you know, Barlaman's not to always Gandalf, punctual. Actually, that's yeah. He could nice. actually use one of those. Yeah. yeah. Barlaman's not always punctual with the mail, but we'll get back, and he really won't be punctual with the mail after he's heard tonight's Barlaman's no, bag. No, that's for sure. But we will get back to you as soon as we can, and your question or comment may be featured on an upcoming show. Yeah, he's too busy trying to get to the gym now. Well, this has been <laughs> far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. 